Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Catherine McKinnon and Michael Lerner. Due to a technical issue, the first few minutes of this recording are unavailable. We now join the conversation in progress. For whom it operates in its definitions and exercise of power and things like that. So it basically... It's asking gendered questions about the state as an institution. And what did you conclude about the gender of the state? That it's male, in the social sense. Uh, not a surprise. I mean, if women had no voice in it, I guess somebody did, right? And, and that would be uh, coming from the experience of the group men, uh, but actually it was a very specific group of men who created the idea of the state, and actually that, that it would be hierarchical, for example, which is not self-evident, uh, written nowhere, except now written everywhere, you know, that it has to be arranged in that way. And um, coming from the experience of elite white men in Western Europe who uh, were, as I much later learned, um, not only, you know, the elite economically and in gender terms, uh, but also they were the ones who were, uh, the only ones who were able to, say, consume pornography. Uh, they were the ones who were creating economic structures within which, both in the family and outside of the family, women were being subordinated and sexually used. That, and that all of those values were embedded, and it, because it's their experience, right? They were creating an institution that was going to do what this group of people wanted to have done and needed to have done and guarding against things that they were afraid of and worried about having happen. And so they set it up like that. In your book, from which we took the title of the conversation, Are Women Human and Other International Dialogues, the title essay, Are Women Human, is a reflection on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I wanted to ask you if you would read the first three paragraphs. Yeah, sure. This is great because it's one of the few things in this book, or actually most of my books, that wasn't first spoken before it was written. Most, most of the things are talks that then became other than the thesis. You know, that then, but, but this one was written, so you know, let's, let's see if it speaks, right? The Universal Declaration of Human Rights defines what a human being is. In 1948, it told the world what a person, as a person, is entitled to. It's been 50 years. Are women human yet? If women were human, would we be a cash crop shipped from Thailand in containers into New York's brothels? Would we be sexual and reproductive slaves? Would we be bred, worked without pay our whole lives, burned when our dowry money wasn't enough or when men tired of us, starved as widows when our husbands died if we survived his funeral pyre, sold for sex because we are not valued for anything else? Would we be sold into marriage to priests to atone for our family's sins or to improve our family's earthly prospects? Would we, when allowed to work for pay, be made to work at the most menial jobs and exploited at barely starvation level? Would our genitals be sliced out to cleanse us, our body parts, our dirt, to control us, to mark us and define our cultures? Would we be trafficked as things for sexual use and entertainment worldwide in whatever form current technology makes possible? Would we be kept from learning to read and write? If women were human, 
Would we have so little voice in public deliberations and in governments in the countries where we live? Would we be hidden behind veils and imprisoned in houses and stoned and shot for refusing? Would we be beaten nearly to death and to death by men with whom we are close? Would we be sexually molested in our families? Would we be raped in genocide to terrorize and eject and destroy our ethnic communities and raped again and again in that undeclared war that goes on every day in every country in the world in what is called peacetime? If women were human, would our violation be enjoyed by our violators? And if we were human, when these things happened, would virtually nothing be done about it? The sense that violence against women is structurally integral to the whole of, uh, of society, of the state, of civilization, emerges for me, having read much of five of your books, as a, mm -hmm. a central thesis mm -hmm. for you. Mm, absolutely is. And did you know when you started out to write your book, uh, your thesis uh, that became Toward a Feminist Theory of the State, did you know already that that would be your conclusion, or was that something that emerged gradually for you? I didn't know that. Um, I wanted to write that book because I, that was what I wanted to do. And the question was, what was that? I mean, I was in the middle of the women's movement, as many of you were, and uh, we were doing it at the time. And the question was, to, I mean, my question was how to articulate what it was we were doing. How come we thought we knew what we thought we knew? Um, in other words, in political theory, you call that a method. And, but how, how it is you think you know what you think you know is how people live that thing. And you know, when you have a political movement, you, at least we did, had a way of proceeding to do that. So I, that's what I wanted to do. And as I went along, the thing that was so always so striking is that it was as if it's not only that women and men lived in parallel universes almost, although there was that quality to a lot of it. It was, I mean, some men very definitely lived in this parallel universe that women lived in because they were always, you know, breaking in to the women uh, in there. So it, the universes weren't entirely in any way parallel. Um, but an, an awareness about it and a sense of knowledge of the things that we, it, it wasn't so much that we had a way of knowing, it was the things we kept finding out that riveted me. And so I went at it through those things and then asked, you know, what does it take to, to, to know things if these are the things you're knowing now and that were never known before? Why is it that this way of knowing that led us to know all of this, which then turned out to be this thing I called and various, all of us all together at the time, at the level of my window? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and all of a sudden it went, you know, my head went, huh. You know, it's like sexual abuse in childhood, sexual harassment, a term that, again, I and other people, but I principally gave a lot of meaning to, um, you know, at, at work, being raped in your family 
and in your home and on the street and out in the community and by your doctors and by your teachers. And then there is this, you know, it, it started to, was starting to come into my head, but I didn't know what to do with it. The pornography and, and but the prostitution I had a, somewhat of a better sense of, but not fully. And when I realized, I mean, it, it, then I, it was like, that was when the things that we knew connected with the way we went at finding out about it in a way that then produced the centrality of this. So then I was in touch with various other people, and it's Diana Russell's work that actually made this possible. Uh, Diana E.H. Russell, um, the, uh, she lives in Berkeley on Grant Street and is, was a uh, teacher at Mills at the time, uh, a sociologist, uh, Harvard trained, etc. And she just did all these empirical studies, including one that was actually funded by the National Science Foundation of um, 729, I think, San Francisco households in 1977 in with matched, ethnically matched uh, interviewers just going place to, house to house saying, asking people about their women, their history of and present of sexual abuse and writing it all down. And the stuff that started coming out of that thing, I mean, that was that, her first work and my first theoretical thinking just like happened at exactly the same time and I wouldn't have been able to if it hadn't been for the women's movement and her empirical work I also remember when it hit me like basically it hit me about rape why why do we let this happen I mean why do we put up with this why I mean that was what came to me like when I realized how this happened to everybody um, I was actually driving down Dixwell and the, there was a a bridge over the road, and I, uh, for some reason that was where that hit me, you know, struck me. And, it, you know, it just, it changed everything. So that, you know, this isn't just about thoughts, folks. This is about things, you know, real, actual events. And, you know, my social science background meant that I could evaluate this work. And not only was it exceptionally high-quality work and valid and good by all social science standards, it was saying precisely the same thing that women were then saying, you know, in uh, what were then called consciousness-raising groups and all, uh, in, in what was then a vibrant uh, press. One of the things you say in, in this extraordinary book, Toward a Feminist Theory of the State, is you, you talk about the role of consciousness-raising and feminism, mm -hmm. and you say... Feminism is the first theory to emerge from those whose interest it affirms. As Marxist method is dialectical materialism, feminist method is consciousness raising. Mm -hmm. So you give consciousness raising a, a mm -hmm. very core role in what you call feminism unmodified mm -hmm. or radical feminism. You describe, is it not true, three kinds of clusters of feminism, liberal feminism, socialist feminism, and radical feminism. Yeah, that's been discussed by lots of people. Too. Right. And, and the one that interests you the most, personally, Triumphant. the one that represents you, in a sense, is feminism unmodified or radical feminism. That's the perspective. Yeah, hence I call it feminism, you know. Right. Right. Is, right. is what I mean to say. In other words, if one is doing um, 
a, a feminist form of liberalism that's a big improvement over not overdoing liberalism without a feminist form of it. And similarly, uh, if one is on the left and one is doing left, you know, left feminism or a feminist, uh, a, you know, approach to the left or whatever, or if one is a conservative even, one can do a feminist approach to conservatism with some very interesting results. Um, but, and those are all improvements. I'm just saying feminism unmodified is feminism. And so people call it radical feminism, which I find interesting, because it's its own theory. Huh, you know, unmodified by anything that men have previously done. You know, we could just call it feminism is all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Good. I mean, I'm not obje objecting to the term radical at mm -hmm. all. It just means fundamental goes to the root, but it also operates socially uh, as a stigmatic qualifier to something that is just simply... This thing is this or it's not this. And I'm saying this is what it is to really be this thing. So your dissertation, your book, really starts, not starts exactly, but early on there's a conversation about the relationship of Marxism and feminism. Mm -hmm. There's the Marxist critique of feminism. There's the feminist critique of Marxism. Mm -hmm. And then there's this beautiful line, feminism turns Marxism on its head and inside out. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Well... Marxism's idea of itself is, which is, I think, a good one, is that it, like, it, it walks through the world on the ground rather than like having its head in the clouds. But one of the consequences of it is to not give, I think, enough attention to, um, to the human mind in a particular way. In other words, its, its focus on concreteness is indispensable. It's materialism. It, it, what it calls materialism. I mean, I, I like say, okay, sexuality is material. Mm -hmm. Dig it. Mm -hmm. You know, they never thought that. <laughs> and because, but what I think is missing is that what they thought sexuality was about was a whole lot more head stuff. And so when I say it turns it on its head, it's like if you had my idea of, of like, the relation, see I started this whole thing actually to write about the relationship between consciousness and social change because I wanted to figure out why was it the case that if a woman thought she couldn't get on a subway and you know go out to Brooklyn she couldn't. I, I, I just like what is with that you know it, I mean that is concretely materially true then right but one approach to it is just to say, you just need to have your head straightened out. But the other approach is it, to it is to say, that becomes material reality. And I just decided that what was up with women and men is that how we think it is, is how it is, actually. And it doesn't have to be that way for any other material reason, quite honestly. And therefore, you know, it is the idea of itself. But that doesn't mean it isn't material or concrete. And sexuality was the place that I really found a most able to talk about that complexity. So it's like, if you take what, what Marxism thinks of is the head in the clouds and put it in the position of the feet on the ground, mm -hmm. you know, then, then you've got it. And for inside out, that's the on its head part. And for the inside out part, it's that... In Marxism, it's got a notion that, like, the real world is out there, and people, and, but, but whatever is psychological, see, a lot of this is, like, creating, 
what people think of as being a psychology. And it's a word that I've avoided only because I really wanted to, to create what was the totality of the space of the thing you know, that was being missed. But when I say inside out, I mean in Marxism, they think, the, the thought is that um, the in here and the out there are in essence sort of two different things. And what, what I learned was that the world tracks through you. It's all over you. It is in here. And also, who it is you think you are that is socially created is out there. That creates the way the society actually is. So that the only way I could get close to that in this Marxist sense was just to say, you know, that it turned it inside out. So that's a, it's a complicated methodological point. Well, let me, let me make it even more complicated for a moment. If, uh, if, uh, if feminism turns Marxism on its head and inside out, and Marx turned Hegel on his head, mm -hmm. then uh, is feminism and Hegelian philosophy in some ways related or comparable since the head turning has taken place twice? Well, sort of, except that with like Marx and Hegel, they were in this specific dance with each other where they agreed on the basic terms. They agreed that as to what is material and to what is ideological or superstructural. And Hegel just said it was ideas first and Marx said it was things first. And so they had, you know, the, the, the perfect dance, you know, the, the perfect, for each one there was a move, you know. And what, what we've been doing is saying that, I mean, is, is challenging the divisions, those divisions themselves, and saying... And this is why sexuality is such a great place to do it with. Because, you know, the social scientists, when they want to study sexuality, it turns out that they, some of them think it's behavior, and some of them think it's attitude. And now they've started doing where there's behaviors, and there's attitudes, and then there's sexuality. And, it, you know, it's this perfect crossroads of the whole thing, where the distinction makes no sense. And I think it's no coincidence at all that, that it's fundamental to the status of women and men and the way that I see it to have been organized and that violence against women is fundamentally, uh, that is that thing that is fundamentally allowed to be done uh, about which nothing is done, is you know at the core of women's status. So uh, I, I'm just saying that no is the answer. Um, that uh, we're doing a third thing mm -hmm. that is uh, takes some from each of them but basically doesn't accept the fundamental you know, structure of the division between the two of them that each of them did accept. Before we leave the philosophy piece, um, there's another beautiful place um, where you talk about um, um, Sartre's uh, contribution. And I'm not sure I can find the passage, but you probably remember it. Um, uh, basically, you say, I can't find the passage, but basically you talk about Sartre as having believed that philosophy could go beyond Marxism and bring the Marxist issues into a, a more general uh, dialogue or conversation. And your view, as I understood it, was that 
feminism, rightly understood, took that philosophical conversation even further. Do mm -hmm. I have that right? Mm -hmm. Could you say why that is so? Yeah. What I was just reminded of is, um, this is a bit to the side of that, is Andrea Dworkin's brilliant story called Bertha Schneider's Existential Edge. And um, it begins with, here I am, Bertha Schneider, uh, basically in a crisis, but I'm a woman, and therefore, um, you know, my, my existential anxieties don't have the credibility of Sartre. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, anyway, that, that is, is what <laughs> I was reminded of in your, in your bringing this up. Um, and also illustrates the um, stunning sense of humor and of Andrea Dworkin and ability to, you know, just like come right into you um, through the, the way she writes. Uh, I recommend her fiction in particular along those lines. Um, what I was thinking you were going to ask me about is actually the part about about uh, Sartre's idea about a group for itself, which I found well, more more useful in, yeah, in sure. a way because it applied and and also you know there's been so much happened since I wrote that with regard to what we know about the relationship between him and Simone de Beauvoir and her work and all the mistranslations of it for which you have to actually you really have to read it in French because it's it's a completely different thing than the way it was translated and. So, therefore, how Sartre is seen and her relation to his work mm -hmm. and, and all of that. Um. Well, isn't that where you end the book with a, 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 with a, a nod to that um, line from Sartre about at least one of your books ends uh, uh, with a, probably not that particular place, but you do talk about women becoming a group unto themselves. Mm -hmm. And the for themselves, women, yeah. And for themselves. Like, so, right. so that is related to Sartre's concept? Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. And, and the sense that, I mean, I found a lot of his, the work, some of the work I found of his that was the most useful was, for example, where he thought about what it means to be a Jew. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something he really sh should have known something about, yes? And in the, in the sense we say in feminism, you know, you walk through this fire, so therefore you know, you know, the heat, the burn, the, you know, you know what it is. And so, you know, what he says is that, you know, basically is a Jew is who the Nazis say a Jew is. And if your question is, what is a woman? Uh, the answer that you then get is, a woman is what men say women are which is to say the people who have the power to dominate you and define you are the ones that have defined this category. Now, that's then a complicated thing to deal with when you're dealing with a movement for human liberation here. And because on the one hand, you can never forget that the definition that, you're, that you've claimed for yourself is in substantial part, and the thing you're fighting to change is the thing you know, that is, that is defining what you're claiming as your identity. And at the same time, his, his whole idea about, this idea about a group in itself and for itself, it seemed to me useful to, to understand that the group in itself is women. It's defined according to how the structures of domination define women. But when you become a group for yourself, what you do is, is have 
both the foundation that's been created by this this treatment and this definition and a you know and a critical vision of it but what what we contributed i think that i don't think he understood is that outside of it isn't where you go to see what it is his idea was and it's 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 a big male idea you've got to get, get outside the thing it's about objectivity and all that which is like the main analysis of of that whole book you've got to get outside a thing to actually see what it is i don't think that's right i think you get deep inside in the middle of the thing to see what it is and that's where consciousness yeah. rising is such absolutely. a critical methodology absolutely and luckily uh this is true because there is no outside uh to this i will defer for a moment uh whether there's an outside to anything and all these things men think about an outside place to stand such where that you can look on it you know it's like this has to do with their love for mars and the like <laughs> and uh but it's all a head trip i mean they haven't you know they haven't been there they're saying i make my head now go to that place that is no place from which i can look back and see the reality of things and i'm like You know what? You've been doing that a long time and our reality you've never seen. Guess what? We're here in the middle of it, dead center on it, got deep inside of it and we've seen it. Mm-hmm. So don't tell me that's what bias looks like. You know, that's what reality looks like. But you know the interesting thing? You can then like you can actually document that reality with all kinds of conventional tools. Somebody had to see it first. but then anyone can learn it you don't have to know special knowledge to learn about you know rape and sexual abuse in childhood and you know what pornography really does and so on you know all these people are like social scientists they study anything that moves this moves they saw it so they go study it and they actually found exactly the same thing so you know I, as i say i think it works um and i think sartre missed that piece so that you know becoming a group for yourself doesn't mean taking a step outside the identity or the identification it means taking a solid step inside and like not denying it and looking from there and like kind of refusing to move for 35 years and you know then you see a lot of things i think so there's been this movement in your work from focus on sexual harassment at work and at school in the 1970s uh to work uh with survivors of sexual abuse through pornography in the 1980s and then in the 90s to violence against women bosnian muslim and croatian women uh who face serbian genocidal sexual atrocities um rape and genocide was what was that piece that rape piece. and genocide yeah, exactly rape in genocide yeah right um You and Andrea Dworkin worked with Linda Borman who was the Linda Lovelace of Deep Throat. Mm-hmm. Um what was the essence of what you learned from that work with Linda Borman? I learned a lot about survival. That she like what does the word mean she both did and didn't survive it and she did because she lived to speak out about being violated in pornography to make the film deep throat and others films 
Um, she escaped. She found her voice. Um, she didn't because she could never get a job even cleaning buildings at night because as soon as someone found out who she was, they would fire her. She couldn't get a, a job entering data. You know, um, there seemed to be something so scandalous about Linda Lovelace entering data or cleaning your office at night that, you know, she was constantly getting fired and couldn't make a living. All she ever wanted was an ordinary life, Linda. People want different things in life, you know, and all she wanted was an ordinary life. I mean, a, a really ordinary life. She wanted to be a mother. She was. Um, but she just wanted to, you know, have a job, have her kids, um, and have that kind of ordinary respectability. And she was denied that. Uh, so in that sense, she did not survive. Um, and she didn't survive that and the consequences of that. Um, she also... I mean, I, what I've learned in part is, for, for myself, is how much I have always gotten from working with survivors. Um, I have subsequently done a great, well, for the last maybe 30 years, done a, quite a lot of work on the pornography of murder, in which there are no survivors. And what it takes to... Well, there are some survivors because there are children who kill children and are forced to kill other children in those films. So those survivors I have dealt with. But when it came to, to say, the Bosnian work, there were a lot of survivors. And then, in essence, I had, you know, who knows how many, 30,000, 50,000 dead clients, all of whom were raped. Um, in, a, in a sense, I mean. I wasn't pretending to represent them, but we were there... I was there actually representing real people who were raped and survived. But, I mean, I, I got everything I needed to do the work we did on pornography, which amounted to, you know, unemployment, um, death threats, being followed, being shot at. Um, you know, I can't even begin to tell you what, what it was. But everything I needed to do it, I got from her. And that's what I mean by being, you know, what it is to survive and what it was for her and, you know, what that gave to me. Mm -hmm. um, now, I also learned, obviously, about how the pornography industry really worked, and which before that about, I had no idea. Let's talk about how the pornography industry right. works. Uh, early on, you said it was a seven or eight billion dollar industry. I imagine it's grown since then. By about tenfold, mm -hmm. because our law wasn't passed, actually, in essence. Right. And the pornography industry, uh, you argue that uh, there is a, a fundamental problem with the way American law approaches the pornography industry, that it, that it protects it as free speech, mm -hmm. for the most part, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that it is in, in tension, the First Amendment is in tension with the 14th Amendment in pornography. And that, uh, as I understand, that, that pornography, as you have argued before the Supreme Court in Canada, where you essentially won, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, we did, twice. Lost in the United States, but Correct. won in Canada. 
say a little bit about what the argument was that you made to the Canadian Supreme Court that caused them to change the fundamental law in, in, in Canada. They didn't change it. Uh, what It's a little bit of a longer story in that the first work that I did in Canada involved how they see equality. And the reason they were asking this question was because they had a new constitution. And it... Um, therefore was open to be interpreted for the first time. And so I was involved with a group there, and we wrote a brief in their first equality case, which involved a lawyer um, who was from England, a man, saying that it treated him unequally, that he had to wait longer than native-born Canadian lawyers before he could be a member of the bar. And I'm like, hello, you know, you want to see what inequality looks like? We will show you what inequality looks like. Mm -hmm. And we don't have any position on whether that is or isn't inequality. You know, you don't have a record to look into all that, really. If you, we're going to look at the real stuff, you look at how people who are not native-born are treated in a particular country. I mean, you just have to, you know, who's permitted to be a member of the bar? I mean, you have to look at a whole set of different questions. But basically, what, what I took my equality theory, which is, is also in that book, which basically says that equality isn't about sameness and inequality isn't about difference. That inequality is, is about domination and subordination. And being equal is about, you know, being about having your humanity define as much what humanity looks like as anybody else's. So instead of it being, you know, women have to be like men in order to be considered equal, which is the model we still have in this country, just said, look, you know, you can have at least, at least two standards, you know, um, if men aren't, but, but the issue is better and worse. The issue is more and less. The issue is top and bottom. That's what an inequality is. Um, and no one had ever said this. Aristotle said it's treating likes alike, unlikes, unalike, and I said, he was wrong. And I don't know why it took 2,000 years for somebody to figure this out, but anyway, we argued this. And Supreme Court of Canada went, wow, that's a really good idea. We agree with this. This is now the Canadian approach to equality. So now it's the Canadian approach to equality. And people, you know, the South Africans built on it for their constitution. It's all over international law. I mean, Europe is still into, you know, they've sort of made it to the Enlightenment. So they're, they're a little bit... You know, they're in Kant now, whereas before they were in Aristotle, but it isn't a big, very big improvement. And, um, but, you know, whatever. Um, but the United States remains... But the United States is still in the grip of this Aristotelian thing, which is why we keep getting these ridiculous Supreme Court decisions, which are completely consistent with their fundamental philosophy of equality. You say you kindly call it a stupid theory of yeah, equality. Yeah, I kindly do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, we first did this, so we say... You know, being systematically, historically disadvantaged is what makes a group be unequal. And here's a group, just take a group, women. You want to see what it looks like? This is what it looks like, okay? And, you know, but it's true for, I mean, look at native peoples. That's what it looks like. Look at, at, at people of color, um, visible minorities called in, in Canada. Uh, that is what it looks like, um, et cetera. But it needs to be social first, um, you want a, a simple inequality, you, you, can, you, know, you can use your old model. Like, here's a law and it does this to this group and this to that group. But really what we care about in Canada is, we don't care about the level line unequally divided. Now the level line is equally divided. Line ain't level. It's like this, see. 
and this is what we care about in Canada, and this is what we're going to do. You know, we're going to either bring this down or bring this up, preferably bring this up. They all, we also have this great theory of reading up in Canada. We read laws up, so if something's better for some people and it's less good for other people, we read them up. Although with Aristotle, you can take it away from those people, and then they're equal, see. So we don't like any of that. And so it basically also affirmative action was already constitutional because it was written into the Canadian Constitution because they didn't want to go through all the crap we go through here with regard to it. So that was something to build on. and So that, that was there. So we had this idea that domination and subordination is what inequality is about. So along comes their equivalent to the First Amendment, which is about freedom of expression, uh, a crucial right, uh, has to be guaranteed. And the pornographers said, well, you, we've got this obscenity law, which in Canada is defined as, which is why, in a sense, we didn't change the Canadian law. In Canada, they define obscenity, unlike anywhere in the world, as the undue exploitation of sex, violence, cruelty, or, or crime. So already, they've got exploitation in their concept, and they've got what amounts to forms of violence. We don't have any of that in our obscenity law, which is why our obscenity law is completely cracked and is worth abandoning, uh, which is why Andrea Dworkin and I created a wholly different human rights law to deal with the real issues and just said, you know, forget about that moralistic garbage, you know. And your law so, came into force in Minnesota, but was then turned over by the Supreme Court? Do I have that? It, it was not signed into law in Minneapolis. Oh, I'm sorry, um, Minneapolis. But it, although it was passed there twice, mm -hmm. and the mayor vetoed it both times. Oh, it was the appeals was, court that reversed it. Was it was in Indianapolis that it yeah. was signed into law, and then um, and challenged, and, and then the Supreme Court did not take review. Uh, it, well, it, assen it essentially summarily affirmed a lower court decision, mm -hmm. which... It, is a is equivalent almost to not taking review, it's, but it's a little stronger. And, and, but anyway, so I was going to say what happened in Canada then, right. and the reason I went into all that about equality <coughs> is that when we went into the Supreme Court of Canada and said, and the pornographer said, you know, all this material of ours uh, doesn't violate the new Canadian Constitution. We said, and, and they said, uh, and actually the obscenity law is itself unconstitutional. We said, actually, the obscenity law is constitutional because it's an equality law. And now you have this concept of equality, and here you have this concept in your obscenity law that is supported by your equality law, even if it violates aspects of uh, freedom of expression in the sense that there are words and pictures here that we're, we're telling you um, can't be there. And, and we just said, and the, you know, and the equality is more important. So we, you know, we walked through the speech fire there and then made our argument about equality, and they bought it. They agreed with it. They said, actually, we agree with that. That's right. And as you say, it's reverberated around the world ever since. Right. And then there was a later case that said um, that gay and lesbian material, well, we said, if it harms women, it's harm. If it, it, it harms the community, in essence. And there was a there's a community harm standard in, in Canada for pornography, and we said, if it harms women, it's harmful. Kind of, you know, like, gong should go mm -hmm. off. You know, mm -hmm. like, this is apparently the world's biggest new idea. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then, so, there was a big set of movements that saying, hey, wait a second, gay and lesbian material isn't the same thing. It do you know, and we said, hello, it actually is gender-based, and in addition, 
If it harms gays and lesbians, it harms the community. The community is being harmed by it if they are being harmed by it. And I cannot believe we had to go all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada to say that harm to gays and lesbians is harm. But we did against, you know, much of the gay and lesbian community. Um, and anyway, we won that also. Moving on to the Bosnian Muslim and Croatian women, can you give us uh, a story of a client of yours from that community that symbolizes to you the broader issues that you have fought for at the international court? Well, they all did because, and, and do, because when we brought the case for rape as an act of genocide, which, again, was the first time it apparently it occurred to anyone in, with their hands on legal anything, that if someone was raped in a genocide as part of that genocide, that that rape was genocidal. Um, and as I say, I mean, the way the Genocide Convention is written, it has a lot of detail in it. These people wrote, who wrote it were, were focused on the Shoah. They knew what happened in the Holocaust and what was done in it, and they had a list. If you do this, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, in a way that is willfully attempting to destroy a people as such, then what you're doing is genocide. And there was f severe physical and mental harm, but there was real detail like switching children in groups and things like that, all, all of which was done. And you would have thought that if they'd really paid attention, they would have maybe put sexual abuse in there. They did, however, put, you know, severe men uh, physical and, and mental or mental harm. So what I argued was that rape was severe mental and physical harm, but also that it actually was part of every other part of the Genocide Convention also, all the other details. Like one way to switch births within a group is to forcibly make a group pregnant of the group that you're trying to destroy, and because men have this idea that the children are theirs, uh, rather than belonging to the women, then they think that they have, quote, cleansed. This is, this is un not American racism. This is that racism, right? In America, you get dirty by having sex with this woman, and the children are hers. But in Bosnia, you get clean by having sex with Muslim women, and the children are yours, right? So, um, anyway, having figured that out, and that was, you know... It, I'm saying then you've switched children in the group. You've not only prevented that group from having its own children, according because this is all social anyway, and again, you know, the Jew is defined by the Nazi. The Serbs say this is Serbian babies. Okay, it's Serbian babies. Um, that makes it a genocidal act, right? So you can do that with each part of, of it, and so we did. But, you know, the... I mean, all, all the women are instances of it. I think in particular of one woman who, with her, she was a, a, a wife and mother um, and a fairly conservative practicing Muslim. Uh, these women were mainly all Muslims, but it was, and it, I mean, again, it's like, it's like being a Jew in America. You can be observant or y you just are. Right, and and you may recognize a holiday or two, but it's not uh, it's not a religious identification for you. So there were a lot of Muslims who are Muslims as a member of what they understand is a, nas a nation, 
became a nation in the 70s, so it's a national identity. And then there are ones who are observant. Anyway, she's observant. And um, she and her two children were abducted by the Serbs around the second day of Ramadan. So she was, you know, dressed up and they were having holiday foods and she invited her Serbian neighbors over like they always did. And, you know, they, she was, ended up being raped by him and the, the army came in, well, the forces came in and took her away and put her into a, a shack that was meant for animals in a, on a mountain. Um, with a kind where you, you put your animals in it in, in the summertime when it's a summer pasture and then, uh, and, and then part of the time and you go up there and you let them out and then you, and you keep them there at night and then in the winter time you bring them down. Um, and at this point the Serbian army was all around there in, on that mountain, on all the surrounding mountains and in the valleys you could hear them. And they locked her up in there from April until it started snowing and um, with her two children and the men from the armies would come by and rape her. They would take her out and then put her back in and padlock her in. Um, she, how to say this, I believe that her daughter was raped also. She said that if she thought that happened she would kill herself so we didn't discuss it. Um, her son was beaten. I think he may have been raped as well. Um, he was also humiliated um, in connection with his penis, which is something commonly that the Serbs commonly did with Muslim men. Um, and someone found out that she was there, and we don't know how that happened. But one day, somebody came with a car, broke in, put her on the ground, I mean the floor of the car with the two kids with a blanket. He was a Serb, this man, and drove her through all the checkpoints and put her in another house and then uh, called up a family member and, you know, she was in that rescue. The reason I asked you for a, a single case is that in conversations like this, the, the generalities tend to be numbing. And when we tell a, a story... To me, they, all the women are right. all in front of my face. So. Right, exactly. I'm sure that's true. But we, we get a more specific sense of it. You know, it strikes me that your point about um, the sort of uh, the sexual atrocities, genocidal sexual atrocities, obviously you see those all over the world. I mean, right. you know, and... It strikes me that in some respects um, that the phenomenon you point to is the degree to which genocide as experienced by women really is in its essence often sexual atrocity. Yeah. And that, um, and that this aspect of genocide is rarely the headline in Western treatment of genocide. It wasn't until my Bosnian clients. Right. And actually the, the miracle of the alchemy of that was that when, you know, they came to me, I decided the first thing we needed was credibility. I wasn't their lawyer at the time. I mean, this happens all the time. We were just tracking bloody footprints to my door. And so I said, well, you know, let's get journalists to write about this because nobody thinks this is real. 
and got sent some journalists to make like journalists, and they did, and they wrote about it and got Pulitzer Prizes, but made it be real. And the alchemy of it was that the world came to believe, to the extent it did at that time, uh, that what was happening to the Bosnian Muslims and Croats also was genocide as a result of believing that they were being raped in mass. Uh -huh. And it's, it's just such a, I still just sit and look at it. You know, I haven't really figured out why that worked because usually, it, you know, what people think is, you know, you see they're being raped and they're like, it's a war. Uh, you know, war is hell, this is a version of it. Um, it they see it as, as a, a side light or a, as a, a side consequence to the war rather than as a central instrumentality of what's taking place. I mean, a genocide is something that is done intentionally to destroy a people. And in that case, it was done in part through war, uh, so there was a war going on also, but it was, it was, the genocide was driving the war, and this, this was the genocide, along with everything else that was the genocide also. And so, how it came to be that we managed to persuade the world to the degree we did for the time period that we did that this was genocidal by having them believe that these women were all really being raped is, is an amazing thing. There's a passage somewhere in your work that um, when, it talks, when you talk about the uh, pleasure that many men take in dominating women, um, sexually, where you talk, you, you quote somebody who says that the essence of being a human being is wanting some level of self-respect and enjoying pleasure and not enjoying pain, or something like that, and that um, that uh, the eroticization of the reversal of that in the sexual domination of women. Mm -hmm. uh, is a fundamental dynamic mm -hmm. in that domination. Mm -hmm. And I just, that struck me as, again, a point that is not frequently made. Michael is fearless. Uh, yeah, it hadn't been made before. I, again, I don't understand why not. But in fact, when I we were talking, you, yeah. if you don't when say we that, you haven't before, said what it's about. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's really extraordinary sort of immersing myself in your work because I've, been connected with uh, strong women and feminist theory for 30 years at least. And, uh, but, but reading the whole body, at least five of your books, it really drove home to me the degree to which civilization incorporates a war against women which is normalized mm -hmm. in jurisprudence mm -hmm. and becomes invisible mm -hmm. um, and is internalized by many women and by many men. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, and we, were, we were talking earlier before we began this conversation. I, I said what struck me was how amazing it was that the field of feminist theory of the state 
is as uncrowded as it is. In other words, that you've done this extraordinary piece of work in creating a feminist theory of the state, but it isn't as if there are 20 other extraordinary theorists of the state who are feminists. And so the sort of invisibility of this in spite of the women's movement of the last uh, 40 years remains a rather extraordinary thing, doesn't it? Yep. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what has been accomplished over the last 40 years by the women's movement and uh, how you hold that accomplishment and its future trajectory against the pervasiveness of structural violence against women? A good thing to read is Bob Herbert's op-ed of today in the Sunday Times, where he actually understands exactly what you just said and is, you know, talking about the ordinariness of, I mean, a one word that is used in social science is desensitization, and he's just talking about how it's normalized to have a guy go in, turn off the lights, and blow away a bunch of women. And um, what it is that means, okay? Um, Bob Herbert does understand this. Um, a great deal has been done, actually. Um, one of the things that's happened with the women's movement is that it has, as a movement, it, in, I feel... I mean, this is, anybody can have their own thoughts on this question. Um, but my feeling is that it's, it's gone both underground and mainstream at the same time. And that that, that is its, that it's, its success. In other words, if you're looking at the history of, of a movement as such, people seem to want to see a movement continue. And believe me, I would like to see more movement. But actually, what's happened is, I think that, it's that so much of, and this is how I see the forward trajectory, so much of, of what we've done has gone mainstream. Um, and, you know, women who live it and believe it and see it and understand it, as well as men who've been changed by it and who've grown up with it as normal, this idea, are pretty well everywhere rather than um, a part of a movement that saw itself as a vanguard of, or in the lead of, or, or was the visible apex of something that was already itself a larger movement. So it's like, I mean, it seems to me what, the way I see this trajectory is, to me, the women's movement is women moving. And women are moving, actually, everywhere. Um, all over the world they're moving. I'm doing, I do a lot of work on prostitution these days and trafficking. And um, women are moving on this subject uh, more uh, in all parts of the world than they are in this country. Um, there are, I mean, there are women moving everywhere in a way that they see exactly what I you know, began by describing. They understand uh, the relation of sexual abuse in childhood to being in prostitution. It's re the relation of uh, being poor uh, to being a person in the global south. 
the you know they understand this slide between you know rich white men and poor uh, sexually abused women of color that you know that is you know the global sex trade. Um, they, I mean, that is is where this this is headed, and my feeling is my and my analysis actually of this is that um, prostitution is the floor. Pornography is just an arm of prostitution. It's the you know high class visible you know bump it up one mediated level away from give it that much more deniability wrap it up in some other thing so that you're calling it its vehicle rather than what it is a vehicle for right that is is pornography but it is it is prostitution which is just a form of trafficking in women you trafficking being you can't traffic yourself trafficking is somebody else is selling you which is the main structure of the thing and profiting from it um, which isn't all there is to prostitution, but it is most of it. And so that, you know, I think that's the floor of this. It's, you know, it's, it's fundamentally about uh, men's wealth being a function of women's poverty. It's about, you know, men's whiteness and what it means being a function of women's color and what that means and just the outrageous disproportion of women of color who are in who are being prostituted um, it's you know and it's about sexuality so in a way the trajectory concretely has gone from sexual harassment to prostitution sexual harassment just being the the thing that people who have another job get to have happen to them to make that job into prostitution and people who don't have another job are in prostitution per se. But it's exact, the relations are the same. And, you know, it's... So, you know, it may be that men have something else in mind for us and that this will not be the end uh, once we address this. But I think it is. I, I think this is it, you know. And that... When that is addressed with, I mean, any, you know, anything, as Andrea Dworkin said, you know, any, anything that can be bought, anything that can be stolen can be sold. That's how she put it. What she meant is, if you can have rape, you can have prostitution. There's a relation between those things. And, you know, if it, that, that you know, that ripping it off is one thing, and but it's really the same thing as somebody else, in essence, ripping it off in order to sell it to some third person, which is to say that prostitution is a, a an indus, as I understand it, I would analyze it as an industry of serial rape, in which the money is not the consent, the money is the force, and that. So, I mean, all these things are interconnected, but, but I think the prostitution is the floor. And it's also, you know, how, how we get back at Marx. I mean, it's like, okay, guy, you know, this is our material floor. And, you know, yes, it is about class, but also class is about it. You know, actually, in a certain sense, this is really what it is about. And... You know, we have then a different analysis of the way race works in this than, than they did, uh, which I thought, I still think theirs is wrong and not effective, but 
was very helpful. And so, anyway, that, that's where I, I see that headed. Catherine McKinnon, thank you for being with us at the New School. Great. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for your presence. So, questions, comments? Ned. Um, what you were just talking about, it sounded to me like when you said prostitution is an industry of, ser of serial rape, it, it reminded me of, of the um, listening to uh, Christopher Hedges recently talking about capitalism as a, in, in somewhat the same vein. Um, I'm, I'm Did wondering, you say it was serial rape? Well, not in, well, are you familiar with Naomi Klein and shock doctrine and any of that kind of politics? A little bit, but I'm trying to figure out where the rape fits. Um, um, I don't quite know how to make this succinct, but at any rate, what, what I got out of what you, that, that line anyway was, it's, it seems to me I, I, that, that, that what you're dealing with, in part, in addition to profound justice seeking, which of course is like, um, for me is like a, an, a sort of an essence of profound prayer, a, 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 a beautiful thing, and but also a, um, a, a fellowship, it's a calling together to prayer. It's almost a call to prayer in a way. That's, a, that's sort of one part of it, what I want to say. But, it's a fierce prayer. Pardon? It's a fierce prayer. Absolutely. But it's a prayer. Absolutely, mm -hmm. a fierce prayer. But I guess I'm wondering how I'm wondering how you can argue, as you successfully do, in some in, in, in the in the women's way, if you will, and not include capitalism. I guess, given that 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 the savageness of that style of of, of acquisition and that savageness of 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 political and and forced organization, if you will, I'm wondering how you can kind of sort of somehow have this special place for women and, and, and given that the larger context is so totally enmeshed in the same form of action. Yeah, the question is what is the larger context? That really is a question. Okay. Um, you know, is capitalism a form of male dominance? A way that men organize dominating women and other men? Seems to me to me. I think so. Yeah. In which case, what I'm talking about is, in a sense, the larger context, and that's a form of it. And so whenever I'm talking about addressing women's poverty, uh, I'm talking about capitalism, um, or any other form of possession and ownership uh, that, you know, that, that is systematically exercised over any group of people. And it also means that I'm claiming that men's politics with other men, generally called politics, is, you know, a, a form of male dominance. In other words, that all the things that are out there that men practice with each other are gendered to the ground. Mm -hmm. You know, they just don't, it, it's sort of like got this white-on-white -white quality to it. You know, it's just like it isn't anything because it's this on top of that. But in fact, if both of them are gendered, it's gendered twice over. Not gendered, not at all. <laughs> you know, and so I'm just saying that that is an analysis that you can consider uh, that, that flips what is con foregrounded, what is context. Mm -hmm. Other questions, comments? Yes? Michael, I was intrigued by your use of the word civilization. Yeah, me too. Say more. Um, I don't really feel a civilization would take the position 
that you were assuming? I mean, it is what is called civilized, this. And, you know, my our women-human question is how civilized is it? In other words, you're, you're using civilization in the normative yeah. sense of civilization. Yes. He's saying, how civilized is this? How civilized is that? Mm -hmm. Right. And when one uses the term, um, because others use it, rather than because it is accurate, mm -hmm. or accurately used, mm -hmm. one perpetrates. Yeah, you mm -hmm. just want to reclaim the term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, have him use it your way, rather than mm -hmm. their way, and, which is what it means to reclaim a term. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's certain terms I'm just willing to let people have. Believe mm -hmm. me, I, I just, I've walked off of that one. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but other terms I am not willing to let people have. And we get to make our choices about this sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think that's interesting. I want to hear from more women, too. Diane. Oh, I think yeah. it would be useful to define what you mean by war when you, you mentioned civilization at war, there's at war with women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the really helpful things that international law has done lately is, uh, is let loose of the word war, so it no longer has a legal definition. Um, what is, is called war in international law is armed conflict, and it has a definition. So what that means is we can define war however we want. All right. You can do that with any legal word you like, too, but you're in trouble with, like, rape, for example. You know, you can decide what rape is is what is really rape, and then you go into, you know, the statute books, and it says rape, and there's something, you know, that almost never happens written down after that as its definition, right? And it's almost impossible to prove. that. So that's a problem, but this isn't that problem. So... You know, I take war as, you know, as a systematic, organized assault. Um, and because I work with equality issues, I think of it as, in essence, in the, in the interests of and by one group as against and in, against the interests and against another group, which is the inequality piece. But the idea of there being a war against women and that violence against women is that war is to you know, analytically pull, pull it all together as, and to say, okay, now we're going to make visible its, organiz its organized property. And one of the good parts is that it doesn't have to have a head. It doesn't have to have a leader that says, now you go do that. That's, that's the old war model. All right? Contemporary war and everybody's beginning to really get a grip that the way war really goes down is, is much more deeply socially rooted. And it isn't just that, you know, there's an organized set of people and there's a dress code so that they all wear the same things. I, you can never believe how much the old definition of war turned on dress code. You know, who you can kill has to do with what they're wearing. I'm like, what an interesting thought. You know, uh, there is a dress code for women, right, which defines the, us X, Y, and Z ways, and that has to do with what can be done to us. I mean, all this is, you know, is, is, very, is very telling, right? But I take this uh, war against women to be properly so-called a war um, because of the vast disparity in the data of the reality that documents who is doing what to whom here, and therefore says 
you know, that men are, socially speaking, encouraged, enabled, driven to, made to be obsessed about uh, doing these things to women, made to feel that they are men if they do them, and men dissent from that also. But, you know, this is the definition of masculinity that mobilizes them in this direction, and that women are told that this is what it is to be female, um, that if you like this or dig this or invite this or want to structure your life around this, that's what a real woman is. And then there's all the religious overlay on it and whatnot. But then when it happens to you and you, you know, if you feel violated by it, you're supposed to sexualize that feeling. And that, even, but a lot of women don't and dissent from this or take that out on themselves and so on. But the whole way that happens, I'm, I'm claiming is a war. But it's one-sided, but it's aggression by some against others. All right. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, um, considering the, the issues that you deal with and the one statement that you made about the women's faces being in front of your... Or oh, like your, all the time? In mm -hmm. your head all the time. How do you protect yourself? I mean, how do you nurture yourself to be able to continue this really important work and with still... In, with as much heart and devotion that you do. My fundamental way of doing it, I can describe to you concrete things, but I think more of more more interest is um, that I actually feel this stuff. That's how I do it. And I, I think that the way a lot of people imagine that is the only way you can stand this stuff is to defend yourself from it and keep it out of you or have it bounce off of you or whatever. And not only can't I do that, I think that just a vast amount of human energy is spent doing that in a way that A, doesn't work for the people involved and, and B, results in, you know, bad law, bad scholarship, bad policy, and irrelevant thinking. In other words, to me, the way I survive it is it really has to go through me. I have to go through it. And I do. And actually, you know, as anyone who works with you know, secondary trauma knows, it, it gets worse. It's cumulative. So that every time you hear it again, or every time you're hit with something again, it, it's everything that that that's already happened to you that, that that happens at that time and that that's actually how I do it I have to feel it I mean somebody's gotta don't you think I, it's one day I suddenly decided that you know I mean it's like isn't somebody have to both be able to think about this and actually feel it that's what's missing you know, what's missing is the people are out there writing about it and structuring things and designing empowered, powerful institutions and saying what's really going on aren't really feeling any of it. And one way to feel it is to have it happen to you, but I think a much more important way to feel it is to have what happens to other people happen to you. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. Other questions? Joel, yeah. Uh, my partner and I... <coughs> have been exploring the realms that you're talking about for many years, basically. And, you know, I can tell you that we feel it. Mm -hmm. But 
you know, what's interesting to me is, you know, and you know, this is an assumption on our part, you know, we have an assumption that we as a species are at risk. Are what? Are at risk yeah. in very fundamental ways. And uh, this bifurcation between the genders is part of what is putting us at risk. We also feel that. Uh, we also feel that the institutions, all of them, that brought us here aren't going to get us out of here. And that's something really radical in the literal meaning of the word is, you know, essential. And, you know, what interests me is how, you know, not only as a culture, but as a species, and, you know, our, you know, as you say, our key is awareness, but how do we move things? so that the abominations that you're talking about both lessen and become structurally different. You see, this is one of the interests that mm -hmm. we have, because we feel they must, mm -hmm. you know, in one sense or other. <coughs> and a lot of people see that mm -hmm. in various ways, mm -hmm. and everybody's got their own way of working with it, mm -hmm. and, you know, people have their own genius, you know, their own feel for where and how and on what and with what to work. Mm -hmm. So my thought is just to have people carry whatever they take from what I'm doing into whatever it is they're doing their way. Okay? So that's the real answer. But to just add a little bit of, about to that is I think too few lawyers are doing that. And that the idea uh, that you, we can just, we can go do that on some other plane and all this, this whole legal apparatus can just be there keep and, and keep on going. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's like the concrete in the bricks that are the structure of the state. You know, and nothing happens with that wall until somebody's doing something with that stuff. And so, I mean, that is the way at least the state, I mean, there are many other forms of power, I'm not saying they're not, but, you know, it has got itself created in this very supreme way that other things, only so much of certain other things can happen, so long as that continues to happen the way that is happening. Now, I'm told and so that's why I work with it. Well, I'm told that more and more women are occupying law schools at this point. They are. Women and are about 30% of the legal profession now. Right, and I'm wondering if you feel that that can have some impetus. Well, it can, but just being a woman doesn't, isn't that much of a help. Right. Uh, it's, it, it's always good that mm -hmm. there be more women everywhere. Mm -hmm. But the other possibility is that you know, the legal profession will tank. You know, it will cease being a powerful profession the more women there are in it. That could happen. Um, it could also happen that the women who go into it um, become the men who have been the lawyers. And to a certain degree that has to happen. Uh, or they uh, will go bankrupt. I mean, they won't be able to make a living as a lawyer. Um, to a certain degree. So, you know, the, 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 pow the power changes the people. And also, the people aren't who they are as people biologically, so that isn't going to work either. 
Um, but, you know, I think it's helpful that, that, I do think it's helpful that people with the experience of women uh, become wise Latinas and are in the Supreme Court. <laughs> um, you know, nobody thinks it isn't important that everybody and everything is represented up there. The minute you start talking about one thing that wasn't represented that should be there, you get into all kinds of trouble, apparently. But um, she was right the first time. So, you know, I, I do think that's, that is a helpful thing. Um, but one thing I notice is that um, women, you know, who, whose way of being I, I, re I admire and I feel... Um, I feel sisterly about the way that they are being themselves in doing what they're doing. I notice that the ones who get the furthest are the ones who say the least about sexuality, if I may put it, to put not too fine a point on it. Um, and that, you know, you challenge male sexuality and how it has, you know, what it's doing in the world. And, um, you know, that's where the trouble starts. And so it's like working with anything else, any other thing, any other way, talking about anything else in public, you can, you know, you can get fairly far. You do that. And it's, it's like it's the third rail of social life. You know, you touch it, you fry. <laughs> Well, you know, you know, it's also a... It's also the thing that's driving the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. Sorry. Right. It's also a rail of, uh, you know, what we look at as conditioned male adequacy, basically. Yes. And men want to be adequate. Right. You know, that's like in a big way. To. Correct. Yeah. We've got a question right over here. Oh, um, I wonder... <coughs> I've seen an explosion in the consumption of pornography mm -hmm. now that it's so widely available for free on the Internet. And with that, a lot of desensitization. I wonder if you'd comment on that. He predicted it in 1983 and said, if you don't do this now, this is what will take place. And along came the Internet, and everybody said, oh, come on, you know, the pornographers won't. I mean, they, they're in this business to make bank deposits. I mean, they, they won't use the Internet. And we said, in 1986, 87, 88, you know, as the Internet starts getting rolling and all this, we say, okay, two things. One, it will be out there for free to some extent, and that will hook people. And two, the pornographers, mark my words, will learn how to make money on the Internet. And they pioneered that technology. They are the ones who figured out how to make money on the Internet. And, you know, they're, they're, the, they're made a fortune for themselves, but, you know, then everybody else uses the technology. But they, um, I mean, that's what they've done with every technology that's come along. They've figured out, I mean, they're more than hitchhikers, you know, on it. They, you know, it becomes their vehicle. So that the next deeper penetration into social life that comes along, they're the, that's where they want to be. And so, you know, first it was like way out there in society, you know, way up there. And all the people who are like reading the pornography and creating our legal institutions, you know, reading the pornography, writing our political philosophy, that class of people was just them, right? So that's been imposed on us all along, but they were the ones that had it. You know, then we democratized it by having 
by literacy and by Gutenberg, uh, you know, more and more people learn to read and books become available. So they go into books. Then we have the invention of the camera, which ended up meaning that more and more it democratized it on the victim side as well as on the, the consumption side because more and more women had to be used to make the new pictures that for some reason they have to see another woman there that way as if the one they saw yesterday they don't believe it anymore or it doesn't do for them anymore what it did for them yesterday and they have to have another one okay so that cameras and more you know so that democratized and spread it further then we have the moving picture which gets deeper and closer in to life and then we have you know video cameras and people can you know can make their own and now we've got the computer sitting in your house you know we had it on on you know DVDs and CDs, so it could come in, and we have live feed now. Now we have live feed on, on the computers, so that, you know, the men log in, they pay the money, and what used to be the peep shows where you stick in the quarters and, you know, tell the woman what to do and, you know, masturbate all over the window in between, now you, you get the live feed, you get on, you pay the pimp, and you can tell him or her directly, including the children, now I want you to do this to him. Or now have her do that. So it's, it, you know, it goes deeper and deeper and deeper and closer into life. And, you know, closer and closer in for the men, for the privacy, for the anonymity, for the deniability, and for the convenience. And the pimps, meantime, are, you know, raking off the profits. So that's been the structure of it. And that, you know, that's where it sits right now. And now the children see it. Well, the children have seen it all along, including the ones who were used to make it all along. But yeah, now the children can see it in a very legitimized context. And the whole point of the pornographers is to legitimize their context. That's why they want to be taxed. Who have you ever heard wants to be taxed? Right? The pornographers do. You know why? Because it will legitimize them. And because then the state will be taking a pimp's cut of every time the a, a child or a woman is used for and, and sold. And that means, and you know where they want the money to go? Okay, we've been in this fight for decades, saying this produces violence against women. They say, oh, no, it doesn't. You can't prove that, blah, blah, blah. Well, we can, we have, etc. But you know where they say the money should go? The pimps? Give it to rape crisis centers. Use it to fund battered women shelters. There's no relation, of course, between the pornography and this tax money. But, and then the, you know, the Violence Against Women movement says, boy, we could sure use that money. So what it means then is they have a survival stake in this group of women continuing to be violated so that they can pick up the pieces later on in their institutions that they have you know, and get paid enough to survive to take care of all the raped women in the world. Catherine, again, thank you. This has been an extraordinary day. Okay. So thank you very, very much. It's wonderful talking to you all. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. 
Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the New School and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the New School.